just encourage you to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. As you are, let me just set the stage and just remind one another where we're at. We started last week into a series uh, to understand biblical justice. Uh, we began with a passage, Micah 6, 1 through 8, that is often used against the church to attack us or to define for us what the church should be about doing, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Uh, there's this way in which it's often used against us when really it is a summation or a summary of what it looks like to walk in holiness as God's people in the world. Uh, it's often used uh, because the, the culture takes hold of that word justice and they define it in a particular way. And then they say, oh, the church isn't living up to this. And in some ways, certainly the church does fail. We are not perfect. Uh, none of us are but, but because of that, if we are going to be God's just people living justly in an unjust world, we need to understand what the Bible calls justice, what the Bible defines it to be, uh, and, and, and we, have to, we have to have an understanding of that. So that's we're, we set out to do that. Last week, just to get it in your mind again, this is, this is the way some of the just perspectives we built out about biblical justice. Biblical justice will always recognize God is God, we are not. It will always recognize the equality of all people from all places as image bearers of God. It will declare, biblical justice will always declare the sinfulness of sin. If we recognize God as God, we have to recognize what he calls sin. It recognizes sin as sin. It will recognize its offense against God and, and uh, declare the harm against humanity Biblical justice will always relieve, as able, will always relieve the burden of the persecuted and hold accountable the persecutor. I need to go ahead and just qualify this again. It's an important phrase, and we saw this built out in Micah, their failure to take care of the poor and the hungry. We need to call that out. We need to recognize it. But on the other side of that, not all people who are oppressed, or I'm sorry, who are hurting or poor have suffered some major injustice to cause it. But we are still called to stand alongside the widows and the orphans um, and people who are powerless and, and, and who need help. So, so we're, we're to seek as able to relieve burdens of the ways in which living in a sinful world can affect us. But we do hold accountable persecutors. And then finally, biblical justice will always rely on God's steadfast love and faithfulness to bring relief. We will not lean into our own power to bring justice. We're never going to be able to achieve that. We're actually going to see the reason for that even more fully today as we continue to work through the series. So the idea is every week we're going to come, and we may not add to this bullet point list, but we're going to seek every week to come and, and just build out a better understanding, a bigger, broader understanding of what biblical justice is. And, and so this week, as we look to Romans chapter three, 1 through 3, we're, we're, I want you to recognize, I just want to call it out right here at the beginning, the word justice isn't even used. Like you won't read the word justice in those three chapters at all. You will read words like righteous, righteousness, just, justified, uh, things like that. But they, they belong to the same word group. And in fact, if you look to the Old Testament, and, and, which is not necessarily where we're studying from today, when you look to the Old Testament, you'll see that these word groups are synonymous and they work together. So there's mishpat, which is the word we studied last week. It's the it, it, it's what uh, is called sometimes uh, it, rectifying justice. So Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, lays out what it looks like to, be, to, to rectify what's wrong, to correct what's wrong. And, and he walks through this and he demonstrates that mishpat, that Hebrew word that we studied last week, 
is rectifying justice. It makes right judgments, it makes right verdicts, but it punish, punishes wrongdoers, and it cares for the victims of their unjust treatment. It's righting wrongs. It's, taking, it, it's, it's making correct what was wrong. This week, as we look, we're going to look at a word group that in the Hebrew is, uh, I'm going to say this wrong because I, I've studied Hebrew, but I'm not a, I'm not a great scholar, but it's Sadaka or Sadakah or something along that line, depending on where the emphasis is. But the idea is here is this is righteousness. This is the idea of being not just just, but also being righteous. And so the, there's a way in which we rectify what's wrong, but in righteousness, we actually never create a problem. So primary justice, this is the idea of primary justice. And the words it's, that, that it, it is represented by today in our study of the New Testament is the di, di, Dikeos, 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 that's how you say it, dikeos, I'm trying to remember the pronunciation, uh, dikeos, and, and the idea here is, is a primary justice. This is, we would define this, and Tim Keller writes this in his book, behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice unnecessary. So mishpat wouldn't be required if tzedakah was prevalent, if it was, if it was what was there, if the chaos would be not required if we lived righteously or, or it would, let me say this differently. I'm confusing myself and so I know I'm confusing you. Primary justice is what the way we live in which we never require any kind of correction. We never have to correct a wrong because everybody's living right. We know that we don't live in that world, Right? We know that every one of us are responsible in some way for injustice in the world. But we don't just have to assume that. We don't just have to, have to agree on that. We're actually going to see it in the Scripture. Instead of looking out and blaming everyone else for the injustice in the world, we're actually going to come to a place, we're actually going to be forced to come to a place where we recognize it all starts right here. But not with me. <laughs> I'm saying for you, it starts right there right? I'm not the source of injustice. We are the source of injustice, okay? That's where we're going to be at. So, so this, these two views, rectifying justice, primary justice, we're going to be looking at primary justice and the personal responsibility for every one of us to live rightly, the failure of everyone to live rightly, and then the solution. All right, so we're going to start Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 16. We're going to read through a few verses just to set the stage. We'll stop and we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. All right, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray. Father, 
just pray for your presence now, that your spirit would be here among us, that, that I would be able to say clearly what needs to be said, that you would bring the right conviction to our hearts, that we would each and in every way seek to walk justly, to live justly, to live in a way that honors you and is good to, 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 to the people around us. I pray, Father, that you would help us. I pray, as we have, have begun to pray, that, that through this series, that we would stir up unity, not discord, that we would stir up a, a standing together, locking arms, looking to you, and standing as one people before you. I pray and that you would just do your work now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the summation, or the, the summary, I think, really of the whole first three chapters of Romans. But really for our talk today, I want, want to focus in on this main point. Everyone is guilty of injustice. Everyone is guilty of injustice. And everyone has earned God's wrath. But by God's grace through faith in Jesus, the just or the unjust can be justified. Everyone is guilty of injustice. And everyone has earned God's wrath. But by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, the unjust can be justified. We see Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the, through, through faith in it, the righteous shall live. All right? For wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Everyone, he's saying, is, is, is guilty here. And yet, we tend to pretend we're not. It, here's the reality, and I, I entitled the sermon the way I did for a reason. Injustice is endemic. It's everywhere. It, it, we live with it daily. I, I didn't even know that word before COVID was around, but now I know that word, and it's, it, it just has become part of, our, part of my vocabulary. And I recently read an article from a doctor. If, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, and you don't agree with me, that's okay, because I'm quoting a doctor. I'm going to refer to a doctor who knows a whole lot more than, than I do, but but he wrote an article for a, place, for, a, for a site called MedPage today. It's like an online uh, journal or, or, or something, I don't know, a medical journal. Uh, but he writes this, t- talking about COVID-19. He points out, over the next decade, give or take a few years, every single person on earth has a date with the virus. It may be mild, it may be severe, but the question isn't if you'll get it. It's when you're going to get it. Everyone has a date with it. That's what he's saying. Regardless of whether you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated, he's saying that we have to be prepared to live with this endemic virus, this virus that just is everywhere, that everyone's going to get it. It's just going to become part of life. Like COVID-19, sin is endemic. Injustice in this world is endemic. It is everywhere. Everyone has felt it. Everyone, whether we like to admit it or not, has expressed it. We've been part of it. It's, it's been around a whole lot longer than COVID-19. Injustice and sin have been around a whole lot longer than COVID-19. It's caused a whole lot more death and destruction than COVID-19. We all spread it. We're all guilty of it. But unlike COVID-19, there is no learning to live with it. We, we can't get used to it. We, 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 can't, we can't find some way just to make it okay. As Paul points out in these opening verses of Romans, our, our unrighteousness, and that's the word. So we're looking at this new word group, which is dikaios, but, but, but here he points to our unrighteousness, which is a Greek word, adikia, which is opposed, opposite to uh, righteous living. So, so this unrighteousness, it could be just as easily translated as injustice. Our injustice 
is the reason for God's wrath. And it becomes clear in this passage that everyone is guilty. Now, he's going to build that out much fuller, much more fully as we walk through this passage or through these first three chapters. And then he shows us that our only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that reveals that God's righteousness can be applied to our unrighteousness or our injustice by faith in Jesus so that we can be declared righteous or not guilty or that we can be declared just so that the unjust can be declared just. Everyone is guilty of injustice. Everyone has earned God's wrath. But by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, the unjust can be justified. That is as clear as can be in these first three, four verses. It's going to become much more clear as we walk through. Here's the irony. It's to me the irony. I don't know if you'll think this is ironic or not. I guess you don't have to agree with me about that. But I find it ironic that we live in a world that's injustice is endemic. It's, it's just everywhere. And yet everyone is screaming out for justice. Think about it. How, how crazy is it that everyone... In the world, everyone who has ever lived has been unjust in some way, and yet everyone is crying out for justice. How ironic is that? In his book, David Scott Allen, or Scott David Allen, I'm sorry, I read his book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, he makes this point. Because of our fallen nature, we are double-minded when it comes to justice. We cry out for justice when we, our friends, or our loved ones have been mistreated. But we find it inconvenient when we are doing the mistreating. We make excuses for our bad behavior or we brush it aside saying that it isn't that serious. We, we claim our innocent in the face of all evidence. He goes on to quote from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody went into a prison and he, he comes out after his experience and he says, Why? Well, I've never met so many innocent men all together in my life after being in a prison. The point that Alan's making is much the same as, as Paul in this text, is that everyone is guilty of injustice. The irony he highlights, is the irony I'm highlighting, is that even though we're all guilty, we're crying out as if we long for justice. But what happens when the unjust get justice? If I'm unjust and I'm crying out for justice and I'm wanting biblical justice to have its way, what does that mean? For me, or for us. And here's the thing: I I I don't think that we have to just just assume and just oh well yeah yeah okay I get that Seth's right. No, there's there's plenty of examples of it all around us today. The the rise in prominence of of new of of growing prominence of ideologies like critical theory. You probably have heard of critical race theory, but there's a whole line of thinking called critical theory that has to do with all kinds of different ways in which we divide one another. Critical theory says it it views reality through the lens of power, dividing people into oppressed groups and oppressor groups along various axes like race, class, gender, sexual orientation, physical ability, and age. It's a way of looking at the world as if there are haves and have-nots. And then it inherently pits the two against one another. It makes enemies out of the haves and the have-nots. So, so automatically, in the, in the view of critical theory, the powerful oppress the powerless. And we know that that happens. But that's the primary purpose. That's the primary view in critical theory. The power, powerful oppress the powerless. And then society is responsible to come to the aid of the victim and overturn the power structure... So that the powerless become the powerful. Well, what's going to happen if unjust people 
who were powerless overthrow the power structure and become powerful. Boy, that's, an, that's a treadmill I don't want to climb onto. That's an unending struggle, right? The, 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 the rich, the, the view is that the rich got rich by taking advantage of oppressing and, and working out injustice against the poor. I wouldn't say that that's not happened. We know it has. In fact, Dave, reading from James earlier, highlights that the rich oppress the poor, right? We know it happens, but it's not the only way or the only thing that causes poverty in the world. Uh, Tim Keller, again, in his book, Generous Justice, is a book I'd commend to you to read and try to strive to understand these things more fully. He makes a very compelling and biblical case that there are three causes of poverty. Uh, oppression, it's real, it's true. Calamity, like natural disaster. Just being born in West Africa or Sub-Sahara Africa is going to mean that you live in poverty, right? This is the reality of where you live. Personal, moral failure. Not everyone who is poor has been oppressed. Some of them just live in sin and are enslaved to sin. And they live in that poverty because of their continued pursuit of sin. So, so oppression, it's one of three causes, but critical theory ignores the other two to prioritize the one. And, and, and then here's, here's, here's what happens. They actually make it okay, and they make it just for the poor to steal from the rich because they've been oppressed by the rich. And so in this pursuit of so-called justice in the world, we see the unjust, or, or we see injustice. We see the, the so-called just acting unjustly. Intersectionality is another ideology. sits oftentimes next to critical theory. The idea, this ideology, is that it's gained prominence over the last few decades. Um, the best way to describe it, the best way to define it, is to give you an example. So intersectionality focuses on different classifications that we make of one another. So I happen to be a straight, white, cisgender man. Uh, there's a, a Christian. I'm also Christian. So there are these classifications, right? So I'm, I'm straight, I'm white, I'm, I'm Christian, I'm cisgender, which means I'm male even in my view of myself, and I'm truly physically male. That's one of the ways, that, that's one of the ways I'd be classified. And because of that, I'm at the top of the privilege pile. Not because no, anybody knows what I've actually experienced in my life, not, not because anybody knows what has happened to me or what injustices I've suffered, but simply because of these classifications, I'm considered at the top of the privileged pile. And anyone else like me is like that. Compared to a, a, a lesbian, black, atheist, transgender woman who's going to be heavily discriminated or oppressed automatically, not because of where she stands socioeconomically or not because of where, just because of these characteristics and these traits. And then there's something in the middle, like there's a whole spectrum, right? There's this whole view of this. So a straight, white, atheist, cisgender woman, not as privileged as I am in culture, but she has also not experienced the levels of discrimination, and she's experienced discrimination differently than the black woman I described. He, he, the, the thing is, is what ends up happening is this intersectionality be, begins to be weaponized against people. We, we work against whole people groups, and systems uh, are, are identified and built out. And then they define a path to justice that rejects biblical justice in favor of a form of justice that's based on a lived experience 
a personal preference, and an individual identity. And as you can imagine, if you just stop and think about this, as you can imagine, this list of all these classifications can grow very long. Think about where this goes. Just logical extension. Man, we're so individual in this list that suddenly there is no ability to have a group think or to, because everybody has their own personal view. And what ends up happening is this pursuit of justice is, it, it becomes unjust. It actually works against what the Bible teaches. It actually works against the biblical view of justice and begins to perpetrate and extend and, and ex, ex, expand on all the just injustice that happens in the world. It's crazy. It's ironic. It, it, it's absolutely ironic that we live in this time, this, this time now where the narrative is all about justice. We want justice. People are walking out on the streets carrying their signs. We want justice. But they don't have any idea what they're asking for. They don't have any understanding of what they're trying, and they don't have any clue that they are part of the problem. And they're doing everything they can to, to reject that philosophy or that ideal. And the cultural challenges of Paul's day, they, they would have looked a little bit differently. Some of the same stuff was around. The language would have been different. The, the perspectives would have been slightly different. But sin was just as sinful then as it is now. And people were just as unjust then as they are now. And so now, even though the, the cultural feeling is a little bit different, the, the, the lessons learned here, are absolutely still relevant to us. And we need to know this. We need to understand this. Everyone is guilty of injustice. Everyone has earned God's wrath, but by God's grace through faith in Jesus, the unjust can be justified. But, but let's just see. Let's dig into that idea that everyone is unjust, that everyone's guilty of this. And, and the first lesson that I would show to point, to point you to that is first, injustice always with, begins with rejection and replacement of God. It always begins with rejection and replacement of God, and that's right where he starts. He expresses his, his love of the gospel, he's not ashamed of it, and then he turns and he shows why God's wrath is being revealed. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He goes on in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They rejected God, and they replaced God. They, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what's happening. And, and, and he's, he's writing it, he's showing us. This is, everyone has done this. It always starts here. Always starts here. John Stott, in his comments on this passage, writes this, Scripture, Scripture, not just Paul, Scripture is quite clear that the essence of sin is godlessness. It is the attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible, the determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The, the converse is also true. The essence of goodness is godliness. To love him with all our being and to obey him with joy. From the very beginning, this is what, what, what mankind has been about doing. If you think all the way back to Adam and Eve, what did they do? They sought to go their own way. Oh, they just ate a piece of fruit. I mean, and God said, don't eat from that tree. And they ate that fruit. It's not really that big a deal. But what they did was deny that God had the authority to tell them that. They denied God, God his godhood, and they decided to go their own way. They became their own god. And immediately what happens? The, the very first consequence of 
their action in eating that fruit, the very first consequence of that is that their eyes are opened, they become ashamed because they see that the other is naked. The immediate consequence is not immediately felt between them and God, although it was going to be revealed that that was the case. But immediately, division between them, separation between them. The very next story about the relationship between people, we see uh, Cain angry and killing his brother. Injustice always begins here. We displace God. We, we, We replace him with something else. We reject him as God. Consider the Ten Commandments. This is another place we can see this in the Scripture. They, they serve as a summary of God's law given to Israel, right? So, so we've got the Ten Commandments. Some New Testament Christians still use them. I don't, I, I don't see them as authoritative over us. I do think they give us a, 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 a summary, maybe a view of what it might look like, but they don't have the same authority. I can talk to you about that more later. But there's this idea. We look at them and we see the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Can't have any other guys before me. The second one is about idolatry. You're not supposed to, so, so there's a way in which we're not supposed to have our heart tuned towards any God. We're not supposed to have any idol of our heart. And the second one, we're not supposed to create anything or build anything, carve anything that represents God to us. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. But then we come down to, let's say, the eighth commandment you shall not steal. To break the eighth commandment, you have to break the first commandment. You have to love something more than you love God if you're going to disobey his command. You have to desire something more than you desire God if you're going to dishonor him in disobedience. Every one, two through ten, every one of these commands, it will be broken, or when broken, breaks the first one. Injustice always begins with rejection and replacement of God. That sin, that injustice, that's unrighteous living, this idea in which we live and act towards God as if he's not God and we worship something other than him. Even in our study last week when we were looking at justice from Malachi or from Micah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8, the very first principle became very clear very early on in the process that to do justice means that we must view, we must reflect or recognize that God is God. If we don't start with God being God, then we'll never arrive at justice. And so let's just consider this for just a moment. All this, all this pursuit of critical theory and, and identifying all these different attributes of one another and, and, and this intersectionality. The whole time they're rejecting God. Are they ever going to arrive at justice? Absolutely not. Because they've displaced God. They've replaced him and rejected him. So we, get, we can determine this, right? We can see this happen. And, and this, isn't just, this isn't just one verse. You can see it happen in verse 21. You can see it happen in verse 25. We've not got here in our reading, but let me just, let me just point this out. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. He's recognizing, again, they rejected and replaced God. Verse 28, we're going to see it again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. This is where it always starts. If we are going to arrive at justice, if we have a chance at living justly in an unjust world, we have to start here. We must, we, we must see God as God and recognize that we are not. 
The second lesson I think we can draw from these verses about personal responsibility and, and living justly is, the second, is, is injustice is always a compounding problem that won't solve itself. Injustice is always a compounding problem that won't solve itself. You can see this again, going back into verse 18. Let's just look back at 18 and see it. They, 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 for, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So they're in their unrighteousness, in their injustice. That's the word adikia again. It means injustice or unrighteousness, sin, wickedness. There's a lot of different ways it can be translated. But, but in that unrighteousness, in that injustice, we suppress truth. So lies have their way. Lies are the thing that we all agree upon. And in our injustice, we actually try to cover up or hide what's true. So, so, so we see injustice is always a compounding problem that won't solve itself. First and foremost, it's compounded by the suppression of truth with more injustice. So injustice starts with a rejection replacement of God, right? We see that happen, but then that injustice is built upon as we continue to suppress truth with injustice. Once that truth is suppressed, just, just think about this, what happens to the standard of truth? What happens to truth once we begin to suppress it with our injustice? It becomes subjective. It becomes determined upon whether I want to see it as true or not, whether I want to agree to it as true or not. We lose any sense of objective and real truth. We, we lose any sense of being able to say this is true and this is not. We lose any sense of being able to talk about what's right and wrong. Hey, th this became clear. Um, I don't remember where I first came across it. I was watching a video on, on Netflix about flat earthers. I'm not a flat earther. I, boy, I'm just, I, I love watching this stuff. I don't know why I enjoy it, but I do. Maybe I, I'll go into that later. Another time, it's not for this sermon. But in the midst of this documentary, they were actually doing a pretty good job of not just making them sound crazy, but showing just how they came to their conclusions, walking through some of the tests. can't remember the name of the documentary. But one of the things they highlighted was that once you begin to believe one thing's a lie, it's easy to begin to just see how everything else behind it is a lie. And so they showed, I can't remember his name, they showed this guy who was, who, who's big in flat earther world and, 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 and presenting this idea that, that this is a lie, this is a lie, this is a lie. So he's come to the place where, where it's not just a lie that the earth is flat, but to continue with his theory, he's determined that NASA is part of it and all of NASA is either believing or promoting a lie, right? The whole thing. And, and it's not just NASA. There's this whole group of people outside of NASA that are promoting and perpetrating this lie. And it's so, so once you believe this lie and begin to suppress this truth, it's, be, it's easy. It's just very natural. And so truth becomes subjective and it becomes built again on personal preference, lived experience, and, well, what I like and what I don't. And the God that we create out of that is a God of our own design. So injustice is always a compounding problem that won't solve itself and it's compounded by the suppression of truth with more injustice. Where do we go to find truth? The scripture, God's word. This, this, this is it. This is where we look for truth and seek to understand. This, this is the place. Injustice is always a compounding problem that won't solve itself. It's also compounded by futile thinking and foolish hearts. Look, look just, uh, just, just a little bit later in verse 21. For although they knew God, they knew him. They had knowledge of him. They didn't, have, didn't know him in personal intimacy or anything like that. They had some knowledge of him. 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. They, 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 they say these things that sound so wise. Oh, man, listen to that. It sounds so wise. And it's absolutely foolish. The idea here is, is that their thinking becomes empty and fruitless. It never really amounts to anything. And the foolishness, the idea is senselessness. It's without logic, without, without any kind of sense anymore. It's just silliness. So not only has the truth been suppressed, but, but in suppressing the truth, we run down this line where everything becomes fruitless and senseless in thought and desire. You see the compounding problem. Because now not only do you have truth to reorient you, the thoughts and Desires of, the thoughts of your mind, desires of your heart are given to everything that's not true. I think a good example of this is just happening, the, the, especially these two things together. Just happened this weekend. There was a, a, a woman's march, a women's march down, downtown. And the, the, the march, although is promoted first and foremost, at least the way I heard it, uh, as a women's march, the, the, the march was really about a protest against Texas's right, uh, heartbeat bill. So, so Texas has written a law or put, put a bill in place, or I don't know if they've actually voted it in just yet, that abortion can't be done after a heartbeat is heard. And so what would seem so plain to many of us, that that's a good law. Like, why wouldn't we want that law? You hear a heartbeat, that's an indication of life. Why wouldn't you want that? All over the nation, women marched, demanding, protesting against, demanding their right to reproductive rights. They were carrying signs like, uh, our body, our choice, our rights. That particular one had the, you know, the black power fist or the defiance fist. I don't know if it's always about black power, but at least that's the way I've always seen it. But the hands, different colors, like representing the different ethnicities raised in a fist. We defy your right to come and tell us we can't abort our babies. Totally disregards the, the body, the choice, and the, and the rights of the baby in the womb. But nobody's going to tell that woman what she can do, what she should do. Totally ignores the rights of, of health care in the baby when, when, when they run out and, and, and carry signs that say, abortion is health care. Health care is a human right. What about the baby in the womb? What about that unborn? And if justice, if, if, if we are supposed to be protecting the vulnerable, taking care of the powerless, taking care of the ones who's, who's, who's persecuted and, and taken advantage of. The, the widows, the orphans, doesn't that include the unborn? But we live in a world, we live in a nation that fights for the right to kill babies. Now, I recognize that there's all kind of things that happen in this world. There are all kind of, and maybe, maybe even sitting in this room, listen to me, hear me. Even sitting in this room, there may be somebody who has walked through this. Hear me. There is grace and forgiveness for you. You hear me? You're not the only one who's committed an injustice. I've committed injustice. We're all guilty. There's a solution. We're going to get there. Just hang with me. We're going to get there. But we, li we, we live in a world that is so vehemently opposed to anything true now that their thoughts are fruitless. Their, 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 their hearts are foolish. 
and yet they're claiming to be wise. When you've suppressed the truth and your thinking becomes futile, your heart's filled with foolishness, injustices multiply. It's compounded even further. It's compounded even further when injustice, when our injustice is met with God's wrath and judgment. Again, we haven't got to these verses yet in our reading, but let me just highlight how this works out. In verse 24, therefore, therefore, God gave them up. I don't know that there's more fearful, fear, fear, fear-filled words. No, it should cause greater fear. God gave them up, verse 24. Verse 26, it says, for this reason, God gave them up. Up. Verse 28, since they did not acknowledge, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. It's a handing over. You want this, you got this. It's not some passive thing. It's, a, it's his wrath and his judgment. Douglas Moo calls this out pretty clearly. He writes, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned. God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing Sin. Hear me, though. God is not responsible. God, God, God is not increasing sin. He's giving the sinful, foolish heart exactly what it wants. And what happens? When it meets God's justice, when it meets God's judgment, when it meets God's wrath, injustice is compounded. And no one, Paul's going to make the point very clear, no one has an excuse. So, so first, injustice starts with the replacement and rejection of God. Second, injustice is always a compounding problem that won't solve itself. It just keeps growing. It keeps, if, if left to itself, it's always going to go that direction. Third, injustice is every person's problem. Everyone is guilty. It's clear. We've already, I've already shown you. It, it, it's clear from the very beginning, <laughs> but it's about to get way more clear. Now, most scholars, when they break down these passages from chapter 1 through chapter 3, they break it down into two people groups and then one final summary of Gentiles, Jews, and then everyone. I'm going to follow uh, John Stott's formula for this, where he breaks it down between Gentiles, uh, uh, moralists, or people who are like self-righteous folks who are either Jew or Gentile, and then he's going to speak directly to Jews and then he's going to come back and speak to everybody. That's the, that's the formula we're going to break it down around. And we're going to see that this is everyone, including you and me. First, the depraved Gentile society. Look at Romans 1. We'll pick up where we left off in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the, and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up for dishonorable, to their dishonorable passions. For, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And kids, listen up to this one. Disobedient to parents. Every one of us fall in this category and committed injustice against other people and our God. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them, but they but give approval to those who practice them. <laughs> we could break this down, and we don't have a lot of time to go into all the details, but just break it down in verses 24, and then in 26 through 27, we see sexual immorality, specifically homosexuality, the injustices we commit against one another sexually, uh, e- either in regular sexual immorality or homosexuality specifically. In verses 28 through 31, filled with injustice, they could only do injustice. That's all. And no, no one did any justice. They were only doing injustice. And it's seen in their treatment of one another in God. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, and slander. They want what the other has. They decide that the other person is not worth it. Let, let's just get rid of that person. Strife, anger, deceit, lying to one another, malicious intent. I I don't have a good intent. I want myself to have what I want. I don't care if it costs you or not. Gossip, we talk about one another. We we ruin one another's reputation and slander. They hate God. They're insolent, haughty, boastful. Not only do they hate God, they're self-exalting. They're insolent, haughty, and boastful. They invent new ways to do injustice. Think about that. Like, we're making up new ways to do injustice, Paul says, in this list of vices. Disobedient to parents. And then he finishes the list off with, with, with these four words that sound very similar in the original language. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We make no sense. We're faithless before God. We're heartless towards one another. And we treat each other with ruthlessness. They have some knowledge that God's justice or God's righteousness demands death for these kind of things. But they still do them. And not only do they do them, verse 32 tells us, they give approval to those who do. You you, you may not be guilty of, I don't know, hating God. Let's just say let, let, let's use the illustration I used a minute ago, abortion. You may not be someone who committed abortion. But if you're out defending everybody's right to abortion, that's injustice. You have to be very careful here. Not only do depraved Gentiles, as John Stott calls them, not only do they live in these ways, but they approve of those who do. Then he turns to the critical moralizers, people who judge other people, whether Gentile or Jew, judge other people because, look at me, I'm self-righteous. Now, I like this breakout here because we no longer live in a Jewish culture. We live in a Christianized, culturally Christian culture, and we have this idea that because we're good enough, and in fact, if you ask most people in America, are you going to heaven? Yeah, I think I'm good enough. God God, God will take me. I'm good enough. He's not, but I am, right? Like Hitler, is. he's probably in hell, but I'll make it. Right? That's the way we do. So I think it fits. I think it's, it's, it's a good way to break this out. He, he points out in Romans 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Because it would be great if we could look at that, that list back there and say, Oh, man, that's not me. I used to be that way. I used to disobey my parents, but I don't do that anymore. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. You condemn yourself. Wait a minute. We're guilty too. Because you judge, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge 
those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Or, can, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's forbearance is meant, or God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It, I'm going to say this pointed to the church generally speaking, but we are so good at this. Just think about this. We look out at the world and we talk all about the world's problems and all the things that they're doing and getting wrong. Are we not guilty of the same things? Do we not have hate in our heart towards people that Jesus says is murder? Are, are we not insolent? Are, are, we not pri- are we not self-centered and self-focused and considering ourselves above others? Even the critical moralizer who's got all the reason in the world in his own or her own mind to judge others practices the same things. Then there's the self-confident Jews. And, and, and specifically now, we're going to deal with the Jews. They, he may have already been dealing with them, but, but specifically now we know he calls them out. Romans 2, 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Started off sounding really good. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You, you who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Not only are you guilty of doing the same things, that everyone else has done, that they're very things, the same things he's saying that, that, that you're being, that you're out teaching against, preaching against. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then, in case you think, well, I'm not a critical moralizer, I'm not a self-confident Jew, and I've not really done any of the things in that first vice, list of vices, he's going to implicate the whole human race. You skip down to chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And now he's going to quote from the Psalms. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The whole human race. No one, that means no one. That doesn't mean some people, maybe one or two people. No one. No one does justice. No one seeks God. No one. Everyone is implicated in this. Injustice is every person's problem. Everyone is guilty. I know. That seems really hopeless. And I guess if Paul had quit writing here, then we'd all say, yeah, that's pretty hopeless. But he didn't. 
He deals with all of this to put us in a place where we're only going to find hope in one place. Romans 3, 21 through 26, injustice has only one solution, God's justice provided in the gospel. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, through the law and the prophets, bear, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's one solution to the problem of injustice. Injustice has one solution. God's justice provided in the gospel. Listen, there's two paths that we can live on. There's two ways in which we can walk but there's only one solution to the problem that we face in walking on one of them. We can face God's wrath. We can walk in, in injustice. We can continue in our sin. But the only solution provided to injustice is the gospel. Here's what we have to... I just want to apply this, not just personally. We've we got to start personally, but then I want to apply it to the conversations about justice in the world today. We have to quit trying to devise schemes to achieve our own justice. You'll never be good enough. Hear me. I, I'm not trying to be rude to you or demean you or belittle you in any way. Hear me. You cannot do enough good works to achieve justice and being acceptable to God. You can't. So turn in faith to Jesus Christ as by his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, that, 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 that you are able to be received. It's by his grace through Jesus Christ that we are able to be called just. The unjust are made just by faith. We must quit seeking to devise schemes to achieve justice and, and developing these systems that we say if we just do these things, if we just adopt the right theory, if we just understand the right problem, if we just get people to do what we want them to do, if we just write the right, write the right set of rules and laws for people to live by, we'll finally be just. Have we learned nothing? Did, 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 did the... the, the, um, the, the Civil rights movement of the 60s and the reality that racism still exists in our world today teach us nothing? Were we able to legislate that away? No. Because justice will never be achieved through legislation. Now, I'm all for good laws. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't take this out of context. We need to call our country, we need to call our governing authorities to righteous and good laws. But legislation never results in actual justice. Justice will only come through a hard work. Let's just assume for just a minute. I'm all about ending abortion. I'm all about it. Let's end it. Let's find a way to stop it. But if we write the rules to end abortion, have we made our country just? Or will people still find ways to abort babies? How many more orphans will we be dealing with? And this is a question I posed to our, my community group on Wednesday night. 
If we are able to end abortion, which is, I think, a great, great thing, let's, let's do it. But will the church step up and do justice and begin to adopt all those orphans and love all those babies that we don't know what will happen to? Will churches open orphanages? Will we give up ourselves in our own pursuit of our own life to love babies that we don't know because we made a law that ended abortion? Will we live justly? I'm all for the right. I'm all for it. Please hear me. I'm all for it. But we've got to deal with this in our own heart. If we want justice, we're not going to gain it by a bunch of legislation that we demand everybody live by. It starts right here. Each and every one of us being made just so we can live just. Each and every one of us dealing with the injustice of our own lives so that we can begin to express justice so that God's name isn't blasphemed because of us. We must quit trying to devise all these schemes to achieve justice when God gave us the gospel, the only solution. We must quit saying things like you can't gospel every, every circumstance. Yes, you can. It's the only thing we got. And without it, without it, you'll never arrive at justice unless you face God's wrath on your own. And his justice way is made. That should cause great fear. Every time we join the world in the pursuit of their view of justice, we compound injustice. So in, the, in Christian circles today, there's this argument between whether we should say black lives matter or not say black lives matter. Absolutely, black lives matter. Absolutely, black lives matter. But the organization, I've said it before, you've heard me say it before, I continue to say it. The organization is godless. They have rejected and replaced God. We cannot partner with them and achieve justice. And Christians who think in some way they can, and they adopt those practices, and they bring them into the church like bridge builders, and there's a few others. That's the most prominent one, one that comes to mind. They adopt those practices, and they bring them into the church. They will not arrive at justice. They'll arrive at the world's view of justice. They're not going to arrive at justice without perpetrating and compounding injustice. If we want the world to be just, if we want the world to be just, there's only one way to make it just. The only way to end rectifying justice, the only way to end the need for mishpat, right? The rectifying justice, a correction of what's wrong. Then each and every one of us need to take personal responsibility. Each and every one of us need to recognize that we are part of the problem and we need Jesus. And while I can't tell the whole world, I can't call the whole world to this unless the whole world decides to watch those videos, I can call our church to it. And I'll continue to call our church to it. Our participation in injustice, our compounding of the problem by trying to fix the problem through something other than gospel proclamation and the making of disciples that actually makes people just. That seeks to just do the legislation piece without the making disciples piece. If we're going to have to fall to one, err on one side or the other, that, that wants to feed people but not teach them about who Jesus is. If we're going to err on one side or the other, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to call you. We must err on the side of making disciples. What I would hope is 
that we would seek to do justice while we make disciples. We would feed the hungry, take care of the orphan, look out for the widow, call out oppression, seek to write laws, but never give up the primary command to God, from God to his people to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey, trusting that Jesus is with us every step of the way. We want justice. It starts right here with each and every one of us. The only solution is Jesus Christ. Will you trust him? Will you obey him? Will you live as he's called you to live in this unjust world? Let's pray.